0: To reading this morning, First Corinthians chapter six one through eleven. As you find that you can stand, and I will read. First Corinthians six, beginning in verse one. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous? And not before the saints. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that, when, that, you, that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you wrong you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Lord, we again thank you for your word and for speaking um, on these practical issues, God, as you do. And Lord, we know that you've given us these things that you might be honored and exalted in our lives and that Christ would be reflected in us and through us. And I pray, Lord, that we would again by faith embrace what you have to say. And that we would yield, Lord, to you and the authority of your word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I've been gone for the last couple of Sundays from preaching. Patsy and I were up in Canada, um, quite hazy up there. They, they, having, they told me it was because of all the fires going on up in British Columbia and everything, but I, I'm not so sure I, I reminded them that they've just legalized marijuana up there, <laughs> and, um, and they're really enjoying their newfound liberties in Canada. Uh, it was seriously, really amazingly hazy, even flying in on a little float plane, um, you could only see maybe a quarter of a mile, um, it was just lots and lots of smoke. They're saying, being outside all day was the equivalent of smoking two packs of cigarettes, um, so I'm a chain smoker now But you know, <laughs> it's good to be back home blue skies um, before leaving we, I, I started this series of working through 1 Corinthians we're going to be here for a while um, we've looked at chapter 5 and the end of chapter 6 where Paul was dealing with issues of sexual immorality in the church huge problems but not the only problem and there are a number of problems, and now he's dealing with another one where the church is suing each other, one member taking another to court. You know, I was, when I was a kid, um, my parents, my mom especially, because she was the one around us mostly, um, were very good about punishing us for our sins, and we didn't get away with any that I can recall. But there, were, um, there was a, dis- a distinction made between, even though we were not Catholic, we never heard these words between mortal sins and venal sins. And in the Catholic Church, a mortal sin is one where you can die. Um, and a venal sin is one where that's not going to happen. And so in our home, a mortal sin was one where you embarrassed the family publicly. Uh, if you ever embarrassed mom in public, you would die. And um, I'm still living, but, um, it, you know, it's amazing. We used to have 20 siblings in our family. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, um, um, not bring um, ill repute on the family. You, you acted in a way that reflected well on the whole family. I know there's a sports coach, I think it's in football, a famous coach, and his number one rule for his players is they never do anything that would reflect poorly on the other players, on the rest of the team. Basically, you consider others more highly than yourself. You act in love, the law of love. And that's really what Paul's getting to in this passage here. You know, he says that he doesn't even get into the issue of the legitimacy of the lawsuit. In fact, he assumes that there is legitimate grief, there's a legitimate wrong that has taken place, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor. So he seems to just assume that you can actually have a legitimate case, legal case, against a fellow Christian. He doesn't argue that. He assumes that it's true. His his problem is in hauling that person before a secular judge. And he's pretty clear here on not doing it. But why? And And it really comes down to the testimony and the witness of Jesus Christ. We are His witnesses. We we cannot overstate the significance of that truth. We may not feel like it. We may not, and certainly not always act like it. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to His disciples, and He's speaking really to all future disciples, including you and me, He says, wait here in Jerusalem. And He says, and the Holy Spirit's going to be given to you. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will become my witnesses. If you've got the Spirit of God in you, and that would only be because you have placed your faith in Christ for salvation, then you have, as, the, as a person indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you have become a witness of Jesus Christ. No matter what your last name is, no matter how you may think, behave, whatever, your identity, witness of Jesus Christ. And there are few things in this life more important to God than how we bear witness of Jesus Christ. It is so serious to Him that according to this book of 1 Corinthians, He's prepared to take us home if we are not bearing good witness of Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, there's twice that Jesus Himself is called the faithful witness, So this isn't just something He puts on us. This is something He Himself is. He is a faithful witness of His God and Father. And also in the book of Revelation, several times the martyrs, those who've lost their lives for their faith in Christ, are called witnesses of Christ and are dying because of their testimony concerning Christ. And they're being commended because of that good and faithful testimony that they have of the Lord Jesus So this is a major theme in Scripture. If you don't have any idea what your identity is, you can summarize it in one word, witness. Specifically, a witness of Jesus Christ. So important for us to get that and to understand it. We aren't here just for ourselves. We are a witness of Jesus Christ. So assuming that that you have a legal case against someone, another Christian. What should you do? Paul's problem here is that we go before unrighteous secular courts. And he goes, what are you thinking? In fact, there are six rhetorical questions that he asks in these first few verses here, just in the, in the first verse. Um, Four verses, six rhetorical questions. Look what he says here. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? That's the first question. Number two, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law court? So now, second and third question. The second question, don't you know that you as a saint will, with Christ, judge this world. Well, most of us didn't know that. But the Corinthians knew that. And so they, this is eschatology, the doctrine of end times, the doctrine of future times. So this is another classic example in Scripture where theology is not merely academic. It's meant to make an impact on our lives. When people say theology doesn't matter, unbelievable to me. Theology matters. And even the theology concerning what is going to happen in future days matters today. Specifically, if it is true that in the future we are going to be judging this world with Jesus, then we are competent to constitute the smallest courts on this earth. You may not think that you are, but we are. James will say, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives to all men generously without reproach. We can ask God for the wisdom how to deal with difficult situations. And go to God's word, and God promises to give us that wisdom. So there is, in the future, we will be judging. And that means in the present, we are competent to constitute even the smallest, certainly the smallest of all law courts. They're much smaller than the one that we're going to be sitting on as judges in the future. Verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels? Now that appears to be a new revelation because the Bible, the the Old Testament, New Testament does speak about us judging with Christ. But I don't know of any place that says we're going to judge angels until Paul says this. But again, future events, eschatology, that has practical application for today, how much more shall we be able to judge matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? So why would you go get an unbeliever to deal with spiritual things? Now, I had heard of, read a funny story, and it, it wouldn't have been funny if if you'd been part of it, but the guy was at a seminary, and the way it was described, it may have been the seminary I went to because it was in a poor neighborhood, and there was burglaries and, and things going on, and that was certainly the cemetery, seminary cemetery where I went. And um, and so he was up late one night, and and he would happened to be outside, and he saw a car pull up with four individuals in it, and they just sat there, and they weren't getting out. So he thought, well, that's suspicious. There's been lots of burglaries. So he did the responsible thing, and he called 911. He says, listen, I, I don't know that anything's going on, but I says I snuck over there, and I looked in there, and there are four guys sitting in that car, and there's been lots of burglaries here lately, so I just thought I'd call you. Maybe this is something you'd want to check out. Well, within minutes, police were coming from everywhere, and they surrounded that car. Well, he never found out the end of the story until later. He, he happened to mention to a professor on campus that, you know, he had Seen this suspicious car and he called the police and and the professor said, well, let me tell you the rest of the story. There There were four, those four guys, you're right, there were four in that car and three of them were seminary students. And the fourth one was a guy that they had picked up who didn't know the Lord and they were convinced that he was demon possessed and they were trying to cast a demon out of him. And here come all the police. Can you imagine trying to explain that to the police? We're Christians, we're seminaries, we're part of this seminary, and we're trying to get a demon out of a guy. I don't think they would understand that. I think they would think, you're out of your minds, that has got to be the craziest story I've ever heard in my life. And Paul seems to be saying, the unrighteous, the unbeliever, is not going to get to the true heart of what's going on between Christians, Because we know we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. When there is an even legitimate grievance between Christians, there is much more going on than dollars and cents and laws that have been violated. Much more. And a Christian can get to the core of what's going on here. An unbeliever is not going to do that. He's just going to say, you broke that law, you need to do this. And he he can't get to what the real issue is. But we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers of darkness. So, Paul's saying, think higher, think more deeply. This is not the superficial issue, simply a secular issue. It's never just a secular issue when you're a Christian. So, what is he getting at in these first few verses? It is an incredible, unbelievable, incomprehensible, love that word if you've ever seen a movie, incomprehensible um, thing, to, to take a Christian to court. Saints will judge the world and angels. We are competent to constitute earthly courts. And we are able to judge matters of this life. Therefore, it makes no sense... To go to court before unbelieving judges who have no ability to judge spiritual matters. And for a Christian, in one way or another, everything is spiritual. And the courts are not going to get to the heart of the problem. So then he says, verse 5, I say this to your shame. Wow. Already there's been another place where Paul says, I am not saying this in order to shame you. He was not a guy who just put people's sin in their faces in order to rub it in and make them feel shameful. But neither was he a guy to back away from the truth. There are those that would say that a Christian, because his sins are forgiven, never needs to feel guilt or shame. Guilt and shame are right responses to being guilty, (laughs) to having sinned. When Adam and Eve sinned, they felt shame. And so should we. We know we're forgiven. That is not the debate. We know the blood of Christ covers all our sin and pays for it. But nonetheless... When we sin, it is a shameful thing because we don't have to. When a little child is constantly spitting up all over himself or pitching a temper tantrum or whatever, you just go, that's a kid. But when a Christian is knowingly and willingly sinning against his Savior, it's shameful because there is no excuse. We don't have to live that way. So Paul, very boldly, he just says, yeah, this may hurt you. You may not like it. It, it, it," He says, but it's true. And I know it is your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? You know, I'm prepared to say you could argue that We're all fools. Apart from Christ, we are. Chapter 1, not many wise, not many noble. God has called the foolish things and the weak things, right? But in Christ, we have the wisdom of God available to us because we have been given the very mind of Christ. Paul's already argued these things. We have the mind of Christ, he said in chapter 3. Is there not one person among you who has the wisdom to be able to... He said, it's almost like saying, isn't there a Christian among you? Because we have the mind of Christ. We have the very wisdom of God within us. But brother goes to law with brother. And that... Before unbelievers. Talk about hanging your dirty laundry out. Man, wouldn't it be an amazing thing if the world could say Christians never sue each other? Wow. You know, I, you, uh, many years ago I, I heard the story that the reason that when you go to the store and there's one price for every single person who walks in the store, no matter what, whether e- relative or friend or enemy, you walk into Walmart or you walk into HEB and there's one price and you can expect to go to the cash register and pay the same thing as anybody else who walks in the store. The reason for that is because of Christians. I heard that many years ago because it used to be that in the marketplace you'd have your man have his little booth. <laughs> And, 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 the, and, the, and the man who owned the booth would, would have a different price for every person who came up, depending on whether he was friend, relative, or enemy. So we were in Israel, you know, March of this year, and, and um, I hadn't been there in many, many years, and I, and I knew that there was, in, the, in Jerusalem, the old city, there is a Christian section, there's a Muslim section, and what's the third one? Jewish section. And so you, yeah, obviously, we're in Israel. Okay? <laughs> I got a lot out of Israel. Okay, so you walk around, and we didn't, and we didn't do this to the, la- the end of the time. We finally went to the Christian section. Well, if I ever go back to Israel, we're going to go to the Christian section first. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's because when you go to the Muslim section and the Jewish section, you never know what the price is. They tell you this is the price, but you know that's not really the price. So I bought a shofar, big ram's horn. Every place I went, they were saying, 200 bucks, 250 bucks. Huge. 1st I'm going, no way. So I ended up talking a guy down to $85. And I felt pretty good. And then we go to the Christian section. One price. It's a low price. There's no bartering, no dickering. And you walk out going, I got a good deal. Amazing. That's the way it's supposed to be. And so... It, So the world was changed. Literally, the world was changed because Christians in the marketplace said, I don't care who walks up to my booth, they're all getting the same price. So guess what? Everybody wants to to deal with the Christians. Nobody's getting ripped off. And it changes the economy of the world. Really. It's probably some, people, some economists say it's the single biggest factor that's changed the economy of the Western world was Christians saying one price for everybody. Nobody gets cheated. Changed everything. That's a distinctive. And you think how little distinctive the church is known for today. I saw one statistic of a man who used to be in charge of Christian legal society. He says there is no difference between how often a Christian goes to court and how often an unbeliever goes to court. We know there's no difference when it comes to divorce. It's 50% in the church and it's 50% outside the church. So it doesn't surprise me if that statistic is true. Christians are suing people just as often as unbelievers are suing people. shouldn't be that way. Especially when it involves Christian to Christian. Absolutely wrong. It is a shame to the name of Christ. So, verse 7. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? In the, an article I read by the former head of the Christian Legal Society, Samuel Erickson, he said in his legal mind, when he reads these words wrong and defrauded, it covers the whole legal spectrum. Wrong can deal with something that somebody has unintentionally done to you. They ran a red light unintentionally and T boned you and put you in the hospital. You've been wronged, you have grounds for a lawsuit. We had a student, I've talked about it before, um, just because lawsuits, it always comes to mind. He had an appendectomy. Um, in the process, the doctor nicked an artery, and, um, and the student almost bled out. The nurses just con- put constrictions on him. They didn't understand what was going on, so they just tried to put pressure externally. And he took, it was something like 10, 11 units of blood before they finally went back in and, and, um, and, he, and patched up the artery. It was a mistake. And I remember standing there, and all these nurses that came through during those few days, all of them were were lying, basically. Nobody was going to fess up to what actually happened. And I'm standing there with this family that had flown in from from, um, Washington State, and and in walks the doctor. And boy, he knocked our socks off. Because this man said, I need to tell you what I did. I messed up. In the process of taking out your son's appendix, I nicked an artery, and that's why he almost died. And we were all going, when was the last time something like that happened? where well, this doctor just walks in and acknowledges what he did wrong. Malpractice lawsuit. No. Nope. His Christian family said to him, we praise God that our son's alive, And we understand that it was just a mistake. Anybody could have done it. Do you really sue people for accidents? It was an accident. Would you want somebody to sue you for an accident? A wrong was done. But it was unintentional. But to defraud somebody, on the other hand, is not unintentional. That's purposeful. Again... That, this lawyer is saying, as he looks at it from a legal perspective, Paul is covering unintentional and intentional injury. A Christian intentionally injures you, wrongs you, defrauds you. What should you do? Take him to court. Paul's saying, no. It's a defeat if you do, it is already a defeat for you. That you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? I can tell you why. Because I want compensation. I want recompense. I want justice. So why do we go to court? Because one, we think that we deserve justice. And we think the courts are going to give us justice? We have a, a, an attorney that used to go to this church, and he told me he, he got out of the law profession. He was an assistant district attorney, and he got out of law because he said, I went into, into the legal system expecting to help people get justice, and I realized there is no justice in the legal system. And he says, I've gotten out of law. God has instituted government, and I believe God has instituted the courts. And in principle, they are good things. We shouldn't speak negatively about them. But in practice, they often are very corrupt. And we shouldn't be surprised. So if we think that we can go to a secular court and get the justice we deserve, we are probably being very, very naive. We think well we can go there and we can be treated evenly, we can be treated fairly, and I think again we are being naive. That should happen and and does happen. But we forget we are salt and light to this world. And this world hates salt and light. And we could go there and be treated worse than other people are treated, not evenly. More to say in a second on that. Verse 8, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that your brother. So let me, I'll get to, these first seven verses seem to deal with the person who is taking the brother to court. And then verses 8 through 11 seem to be dealing with the person who deserves to be taken to court. Okay? Okay? And which is a good thing Paul's addressed both of it. He's not just talking about, you've been wronged, you have the case against your brother, you have here the opportunity to sue somebody. He, he, that's just half the equation. Because if we, if we only had the first half, the first seven verses, we'd walk away going, well man, the guy that wants to sue me, what happens to him? Nothing. Well, that's not true. Verses 8 through 11 deal with the other side of the coin. Okay. So first, these seven verses, just just making a couple more points here. What is Paul forbidding? He is forbidding defaming the name of Christ in public. He is forbidding being unwilling to suffer loss, wrong, and defrauding. In other words, he's forbidding you to act as though you have not died with Christ. Remember, we preach Christ in Him crucified. Then how am I, can I always be one to stand up for my rights if I've been crucified with Christ? Paul, I, and I'm not, it's not lost on me. I, 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 I love these passages where I see Paul standing up for himself because I like standing up for myself. And you like standing up for yourself. We're experts on it. So when Paul was about to be beaten by the Romans, he says, I'm a Roman citizen, you don't have the right. Whoa, and he got out of it. Another time, the the Roman officer, uh, official was going to turn him over to the Jews. Take him back down to Jerusalem for court. And he goes, I appeal to Caesar, I'm not going to go back to Jerusalem. And he went to Caesar. So Paul was not opposed to insisting upon his legal rights. But at the same time, he understood Rome is not going to give him what he ultimately deserves. And he can't trust Rome. And the same Rome that let him off on one occasion beat him in other occasions. And put him in jail in other occasions. Sometimes he he would assert his rights. But again, even in that he had to be submissive. Because you can't make a secular state do what you want them to do. And Sometimes they'll honor the Christian and sometimes they won't. We cannot defame the name of Christ. We cannot live life insisting on our own rights. It will make you a bitter, angry person because you are not going to get your rights in this fallen world. And he is forbidding suing Christians when it brings defamation on the name of Christ. What is he not forbidding? I don't believe that Paul is saying you have no right to having your legal issues addressed. His concern is with how you do it, why you're doing it, your manner, your motive, and your means. So as you seek to have your legal issues redressed, the manner should never be vindictive, should never be for revenge. The motive should not be personal gain, It ought to be reconciliation. And this is something we all need to think about. The courts could not care less about you being reconciled to your brother. That is not what the law is about. The law, if anything, is about separation. It is not about unity, unification. One writer put that that thought in these different ways. He says taking a fellow believer to court is not what edification is about. Generally we take a person to court to take him apart, not to build him up. The process of litigation is the opposite of the process of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the goal of the Christian. Retribution or or restitution is the goal of litigation. Reconciliation is pursued privately and becomes no more public than is necessary. Litigation is public. The law may do well at defining separation, but it does not do well at uniting. Those are some good thoughts. You will never go to court in order to be reconciled to a brother. You go to court against a brother and you may never be reconciled to him. The goal of Christ is reconciliation. He's going to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that this is the ministry that God has given us, a ministry of reconciliation. Well, you can forget about that if you take your brother to court. So he is forbidding, defaming Christ, insisting on our rights, suing a Christian in a way that would defame the name of the Lord. He is not forbidding your problem being redressed. But the manner you do it, the motive you have for doing it, and the means is important. Don't use the court, if at all possible. Better to suffer loss. Better to die. Now, obviously, undergirding everything that Paul's been saying in these first seven verses is the testimony of Jesus Christ in remembering it's brother against brother. Now in these next verses, he switches and says, I want to address the one who deserves to be sued because that too is a problem. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud and that your brother. So the person who wrongs and defrauds that too, is unchristlike. Now you can wrong and defraud by taking your brother to court who's wronged you and defrauded you. but the issue here is the one who wrongs and defrauds. Now look at verse nine. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now there's two interpretations here: most would would Take the side here that he's saying, you can't go to heaven and be unrighteous. So some would even go so far with that as to say, if you live this way, defrauding and wronging your brother, you can forfeit your salvation. I don't do that. Take it that way. Some would say when he says that you can't inherit the kingdom of God and do these things, He's not talking about losing your salvation, but he's talking about losing your inheritance or losing your reward. I'm comfortable with that. The point being, again, is there is a future coming. And not only in the future will we be judging this world and judging angels, but in in that future, we will have our own deeds judged. We ourselves are not judged, but our deeds are. And there will be a reward. There will be a recompense. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul goes into detail with that. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Effeminate here is the passive role in a homosexual relationship. So it's two categories of homosexual, the passive and the active. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards. Now, thieves, again, you're dealing with active wrong against another person, revilers. So again, this is not just, these are not just civil cases, there are also criminal cases that Paul's involved talking here about. They shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That's a pretty comprehensive list of pretty bad sins. We would say, like Catholics would say maybe, these are mortal sins. And Paul says that whole list was true of the Corinthians before they were saved. It's not true of you now. Such were some of you. And If there was ever a verb in any sentence in the Bible that had monumental impact, it is that past tense of that verb were. This is not who you are. Stop acting like it. You are saved from this. And when you're taking your brother to court, when you are wronging your brother, defrauding your brother where you deserve to be taken to court, you are no longer representing the name of Christ accurately. You are not being a good witness to Jesus. This is not who you are. Remember, Paul started out this letter reminding these people of who they are in Christ, and that becomes the, the foundation for everything he says and when he's challenging them on the different problems. Remember who you are. You are not this kind of people anymore. And praise God. That word, man, that is the power of, this, of salvation. That is the power of God's redemption in Jesus Christ, that there is a were, there is a was for every Christian. I am not what I was. I am a new creature. I am something different, and by the grace of God, I can be what I am now, and don't have to continue to be what I was before I was saved. Praise God! I'm telling you, this is why this is good news to the gospel. I can just camp out here for a long time. That this is the whir of God's salvation. And that verse, in the context here, makes this not only the best news, it makes it vile, hated news by some in this world. And I'm thinking of the homosexual community. Because they argue, you're born that way, you will always be that way, and it is cruel to tell a person that he can be something other than what he is when there's no hope for him to change And Paul's going, this church has people in it who used to be homosexual, and they're no longer homosexual, and their life is is living proof that Jesus Christ is alive and he can change anybody and deliver anybody from their sin. Why would we trample underfoot the Son of God by acting no different today than what we did before we were saved? Such some of you were. But you have been washed, sanctified, justified. It's not what you were. So what is Paul saying to the one who has been wronged? Die. Die to your rights. Die to yourself. So that Christ could be accurately witnessed to. What is he saying to the one who is the guilty party? Who is wronged and defrauded? Remember who you are. This is not reflective of Christ. This is not true to what you've become in him. So he doesn't leave anything undone here. He covers all of his bases And he wants us to come back to the simple truth this life is not all there is. There is a future. Jesus is going to make it all right. And we don't want to spend our lives fighting each other when that isn't even the real fight. I came across a list of 16 questions to ask before going to court. But I want you to remember, nothing in this passage is saying the secular court is evil. God established government. And there is a place for courts. God uses them. But the secular court is never going to get to the heart of what the issue is. And the secular court is never going to press for reconciliation. Questions to ask Number one, what action by me is likely to bring the most glory to God? That should always be the first question we ask in everything we do. Am I actually going to glorify Jesus by suing my brother? Question number two, and this one feels very real Today, because we lost a brother this week. If I had six months left to live, how much of my life, how much of that time would I spend in litigation? If God were to say, if you just somehow knew I only have six weeks left to live, and I've got somebody I deserved that deserves to be sued, are you really going to spend any of that six months in a, in lawsuit, in litigation? What are my true motives for getting involved in litigation? Is it a desire for revenge or security? See, I think, and this is why I'm I'm very cautious about saying it is an absolute, a Christian should never sue another Christian. I'm cautious about that because God uses the courts to protect innocent people and to punish evildoers. They are a minister of God to do that and you can a christian can sue another christian on behalf of another christian because of evil that's being done say you're the executor of a will and and the and the and the and the recipients of the will are minors and they and they are being taken advantage of by someone else who's trying to lay claim on that estate you have an obligation legally and morally to do everything you can to protect the interest of those minor children. And that may mean taking someone to court. But you're not acting in your own benefit. You're acting in the benefit of someone else. Is there a principle or issue at stake which is broader than my personal interest? And then a number of questions about witness and testimony. Will the action I take compromise my witness before other Christians? Will I be a stumbling block? Will the action I take compromise my witness before non-Christians? Will I be a hindrance to them receiving the gospel? Will the action I take compromise my witness before the other party, their counsel or my counsel? Will the action I take compromise the testimony of the church or other Christians? Will my action have potentially damaging consequences on innocent third parties? Other questions, does Scripture expressly forbid the action I plan to take? Does Scripture expressly endorse the action I plan to take? Am I most concerned about my name, my reputation, my feelings? Does the dispute affect my obligations to my family and household? What are my other alternatives? Is forgiveness appropriate, always? Is settlement and compromise appropriate? Have I met with the other person one-on-one to discuss what the problem is and to listen to his side of the story? Have I sought out counselors or mediators to assist in reconciliation? Am I as eager to forgive and be reconciled as I am to assert my rights? And the final question, in whom have I placed my real trust? Jesus or the courts? We are here on this planet, saved by the blood of Christ, to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. I don't take these matters lightly, and they're not easy. But the main concern we have is the name of Jesus Christ. And if we are those who are on the guilty side of the ledger, Man, do we need to seek forgiveness. Jesus says, if your brother is hauling you off to court, get it right with him before he ever takes you to court. And that's assuming you've wronged him. And we need to remember, if we're on the guilty side of the ledger, this is not who we are. It's not who Jesus is. May the Lord Jesus truly be honored in our lives. Wouldn't it be great if our secular society would say, Christians don't sue each other? I'll close this in prayer. Lord, every one of these passages, in one way or another, comes back to dying to self that Jesus would be seen. Because the biggest problem we have in life Lord is not other people it's self. We want to rule we want to be heard, we don't want to be hurt we want to stand up for ourselves the last thing we want to do is die or let another person win and Father I pray again that our Your heart would truly rule in ours. And that we would be yielded, God, to you and your ways. I pray, Father, that we would forgive and that we would seek to be reconciled where it is possible. Especially, God, when we are the ones who have caused the problem. And we thank you, Father, for your mercies toward us, for your grace, your goodness. We all want to live free, Lord, and not to be bound up by anger and resentment. And I thank you, God, that your ways lead us to that place of truth and that place of freedom. In Jesus' name.